0: This past week, I was talking with someone about the advanced degree that they took in graduate school, and this actually, what I'm about to say betrays my complete lack of knowledge about one kind of science versus another, but I'll just say applied sciences, that's their graduate degree. And I was reminded that um, my best friend, I met the first day of college, he did his undergraduate in biochemistry and got a graduate degree all the way up to his doctorate at Georgetown University Hospital. He said that the hardest single science course that he ever took, the single hardest one, was first-year, first-semester chemistry. Now, I would not know this because first-year, first-semester chemistry, where we went to undergraduate school, that class was at 8 o'clock in the morning on Monday, Wednesday, and a lab on Friday. Now, beside the fact that I lacked any natural aptitude that would have me do well or get anything better than, I think, a C-plus or maybe a B-minus in my high school chemistry class, most of the time in my first year of college, I was lucky, and I'm not terribly proud of this, but it is what it is, I was lucky to get out of bed between 10:30 and 11 every single day, so 8 o'clock three times a week was not going to cut it for me. My friend said that the reason that first year chemistry was so difficult is that it was really intentionally designed as a weeding out kind of class. They wanted to see who had the aptitude, the drive, the willingness to learn and could do the work. Because after you get through that first semester, well, it wasn't all gravy from there on, but it was easier. It got me thinking about, you know, what are the weeding out processes for ministers i mean there's discernment there's development you have to go through the fellowship committee in our denomination but you know i'm going to be honest here i had great graduate programs very proud of where i went and all that but it's a lot easier to get into divinity school and seminary than it is to get into law school or medical school or really just about any other kind of school to be honest with you but there really is one intentional step in ministerial development that i would call very intentionally a weeding out process it's once you're in school already It is the summer, the nine or ten weeks, that every aspiring minister in our tradition and so many others has to do in hospital chaplaincy. Here you are, here I was as a young person, 26 years of age, thrown into a context in so many of our lives in which there is nothing at all theoretical anymore about suffering. All the issues of loneliness, of abandonment, of the meaning or lack thereof of disease... Of health, it's all right there in that summer of chaplaincy. And the weeding out process comes when you're a first time chaplain to say, can you be there? Can you actually be there as a witness to a place in which everything you've studied is no longer theoretical and finally you got to face your own stuff? Because being by the bedside of so many people who are sick or dying will guaranteed. Bring up all your own stuff. There are so many people from that summer that I did chaplaincy whose images and whose spirits are seared into my own, who as long as I have memories, I will never forget their memories. This morning, I'm thinking of one man in particular who lived a very, very rough life, a tough life, some of it by his own doing, and he was dying. There was no way around this. He was dying because of a blood disease that he had contracted many years before when he was out using. He, in fact, was really quite prepared to go. He... By and large had made his peace with the fact that his end would be coming around soon Sooner rather than later But there was one part of his life that was completely unfinished and he was very open with me in talking about it He had not an ex but an estranged wife that he really hadn't been actively married to in terms of living together for many years But there was something that bonded them very closely together and whenever she came in to see him and she did several times a week Immediately there would be this tight tight tension and then it would explode. <laughs> Anger and accusations and resentments and vitriol and all this stuff that had built up over the years between them just came right pouring out every time they saw each other. Until the last time that I ever saw him alive. I went to his door one day for a chaplain's visit and it was closed, which was rare. Normally the doors are open unless procedure procedure's going on. And I knocked and... He said very quietly, come in. And I could see that the drawstring was pulled around the bed, drawn close. And I could see just in the end two pairs of bare feet just at the end of the bed, right through the sliver that I could see. And he knew it was me, and he said, could you hold on a second? Can you just stay for a little bit? And he pulled it back, and I could just see those bare feet again. And what I could hear was so amazing. I heard him talking and her listening and her talking and him listening. I could see or perceive that where their feet were meant that their faces were up facing each other directly. And then I could hear them both crying as well. But it was that quality of listening to each other where they had not been able to listen to each other before, that struck me. I thought, I'll go away now. I'll leave them. This is after 10 or 15 minutes of waiting. I'll come back on Monday and I'll see him again. I didn't. He was gone. But I'd like to believe that he did, in fact, die in peace because this last unfinished part of his life He was able to experience with some wholeness. It is the power of that listening, and even at his end, of the fullness of his life that sticks with me. The UU minister, Robert Fulgham, said at a time in his life in which he was really struggling with sadness, with depression, with despair, and he really wondered whether he could stay in life, whether life would have any meaning for him going forward. He said he started to pull himself out of that place of that despair, When he recognized that although he felt less of life, he actually did not want less of life anymore. In fact, he wanted more of life. That's what this message series that I start today is all about. About how the power of listening that I witnessed in that man's room with his estranged but no longer at the end estranged wife. How they were able to experience that power of presence and more by listening to each other. Listening is, I think, the spiritual practice most core and not beyond spiritual practice. The way of living most core that allows us to perceive the more of life, the depth of life. There are so many spiritual teachings out there right now, right wing, left wing, Christian, non-Christian, about abundance. And many of them boil down to how are you going to get what you want? What's the more physically that I'm going to get if I have the right thing or the right intention? And there's nothing that I have against getting more necessarily. It's just that I think they really set the bar when they talk about getting the more in the physical sense only, they set it too narrow. At that deepest level of abundance is what Robert Fulghum was talking about, that there is so much more in life if we will learn to listen, that there is, in fact, wonderful creativity. Creativity even in the sense that it could heal a broken bond of the anger that had gone between this couple and at their end bring them to a place of deeper peace. It can help to heal a kind of sclerosis of the spirits, that tightening, that locking down helping to bust that open and to open up our being. It is so easy for us as adults to do what kids sometimes do, but we just don't have the fun with it. La, 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 I'm not listening, I'm not listening, la, 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 la. We do it instead like this. Go, I, I hear you. I, I, I hear you. And we don't trying to move beyond those ways of being, which we say, I'm listening, but we're really not. It's a way that we open up our lives. In a summer issue of Shambhala Sun, some of you know that magazine, Buddhist magazine, there's two writers, Hope Martin and David Rome, who talk about the qualities of what they call deep listening that open up deeper ways for us to be in this life. First, they talk about the qualities that poor listeners have. They talk about the qualities of poor listeners as really people who lived in a closed-off space, a paltry space, a teeny little space, said there are two things that really mark poor listeners. One starts with D and the other starts with D. One is downloading. That is taking everything that you have heard off Wikipedia that morning, putting it in your brain, and then just disgorging it so the other person can know how much you know. That's related to the second kind of D, which is debating. Debating. I must convince you of the rightness of what I believe or I will have failed in our communication and conversation. Downloading and debating mark that small, tiny little space in which poor listeners live. Now, what they say, the good news of this article is that we all have the capacity to learn to have deep listening. They talk about deep listening as allowing time, allowing space to really absorb what another person is saying. To go from the narrow to allowing the time and the space to really listen. It doesn't so much just liberate the other person, although it does, but it liberates ourselves. It takes us out of that box that we put ourselves in when we're just downloading or debating. I think it's also could be at least, perhaps wonderfully healing in our society right now. I, perhaps like a lot of you, are very, very excited by the rally to restore sanity. Jon Stewart and the Daily Shows. Clap if you want to, absolutely. I'm going to be there. There's no way I'm missing this. One, I love the idea because there's just too much hatred, too much anger, too much vitriol in the way that we talk about our political life and our political disagreements together today. But what really got me, and what is related to what I'm talking about today, was that they would talk about, they would have some new placards and new signs that it would bring to that rally. And this is my favorite one. I disagree with you, but I'm pretty sure you're not Hitler. (laughs) Once you lay down the Hitler card... There is no place else to go with your political opponent. Think about it. There's no reasoning with Hitler. But if Hitler's everywhere, then guess where we have put ourselves? Right here. We have straight jacketed our ability to understand what we disagree with. And I would say the reason that perhaps we disagree with it at times so vehemently is because we're afraid of it. So the ability to say, I disagree with you, but you are not Hitler, is opening up that space of saying, you know what? It's not, hopefully, I'll download and debate, but some listening. This desire to liberate ourselves from that self-imposed prison term, a sentence that we will always be serving until we learn to truly hear what is here. That is the name of our silent retreat that we're having in just a few weeks. That name is chosen very intentionally in the same way that if you live in an area that has a lot of um, light pollution, you know, that sometimes you get out into the countryside, near the beach, away from bright lights, big city, you know, suburban sprawl, all that, and you look up and you see the sky and you see that blanket of stars, you say, oh, my God, where have you been? Well, the point is it's been there all along. It's just that we were in a place that was too polluted to see the stars that were there. That's the same principle that our silent retreat operates on. Hearing what is here says, if we can reduce the noise, and by the way, I'm not talking about reducing the noise of the person whose car goes past and their bass is on too loud and you get really annoyed at them. I'm talking about recognizing the noise that is most importantly here inside each and every one of our brains. When we can recognize that noise, we can come to see again the more that is already here in our lives, the abundant life that is sort of knocking at the door, if we will let it in. To hear what is here is in many ways an act of faith, especially if we are feeling very constricted and very tight. Sometimes we mistake constant activity, which listening does not appear to be. We mistake constant activity with freedom. How much we do determines how free we are. I love what the poet Rainer Maria Rilke wrote quite some time ago. He wrote a great book, some of you might know, called Letters to a Young Poet. And in it, he talks about the fact that, you know, if you're searching for the answers and searching for the answers and searching for the answers and you're not finding them, he says, that's okay. Stop searching for the answers. For a while, just live the meaning of the questions that you're holding and seeking. Live those questions, and in time, the answer will emerge. As a poet, Rilke wrote a lot of love poetry to God. Actually, his most favorite object of his poetry. He wrote one poem and he said, Our fervid, our busy hands hide you. This sense of being so active all the time that we don't see that greater life, that abundant life, that is already here. This is why the work that we so often talk about in the spiritual life of learning to let go is not just difficult, although it is. Learning to let go is good news. Because if we let go, we make room. If we let go, we say, I can't possibly control everything that is going on. Instead, I'm going to learn to relate to it. We let go so we can let down our defenses and let life back in. Let go, to let down, to let in. It is one of my favorite sayings of Jesus, which for decades I understood as a really death-affirming, life-denying, horrible kind of thing. Lose your life and get it. Die, sacrifice yourself. All that kind of spirituality and theology that I ran away from for years and know that many of you ran away from as well too. But I don't understand what he said in that way any longer. I think what he's saying is lose your grip on life. (laughs) Learn to listen and to let life in and gain a deeper life. This is part of our tradition, our Unitarian Universalist tradition that says revelation is ongoing and unsealed. It is not over. And if what we listen to most is our life, most times we will find what we need. Of course, it is not all easy when we are incredibly stressed. A few weeks ago, some of you know, my grandmother died. And I really appreciate the kindness that many of you have expressed to me and the cards and emails and just the personal interactions we've had. I was very close with my grandmother. And that week felt very, very thwarted to me, very tight, Very constrained. See, because I left here on that Sunday after preaching and I knew she had been really sick for a few days. I said, I'm going to get done what I need to get done. I'm going to get done with my busy stuff, the stuff I need to do, the important stuff in my life. And I'm going to leave Sunday night. I'm going to drive to my sister's in upstate New York and wake up real, real early on Monday morning so I can get there to see her before she goes. Got to my sister's. was all ready to go to bed early, wake up early. One o'clock in the morning, the call came from my aunt. My grandmother had died. So, of course, I'm kicking myself a little bit. Should have made it more of a priority to get up there. So, of course, it was really, really important for my wife and I to get there for the memorial service, which is only three days later. I came back, was here for a few days. Teresa and I, my wife and I, left that Wednesday night to get to Amherst, Massachusetts, where the service was that Thursday afternoon. And I hit the summer traffic from absolute hell. It happens. It's supposed to be a a three-and-a-half-hour trip. It took seven-and-a-half hours. And, you know, the tension just started to build. New Jersey Turnpike, 9 o'clock at night. Why are you doing this to me? Personalizing it, you know, anger and just starting to mutter, you know, that, that, that muttering that goes on in my mind. I'm not going to repeat what I said. <laughs> my wife was great, you know, she gave me little back rubs and massages and, no, everything's okay. I understand you're tense. It's all right. And we got finally north in New York City. I thought, okay, can't be as bad as a New Jersey turnpike. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. I listened to all the traffic, real-time radio that I could. I'm going to take the Hutchinson River Parkway, which I've been on hundreds of times in my life. I figured this time at night, after rush hour, many hours past rush hour, everything's clear. It's all right. And then some idiot and I called him or her, much worse than idiot, this is the space that I was in, decided to drive their truck, which you're not allowed to do, on the Hutchinson River Parkway, you cannot drive any trucks, and had wedged his truck right underneath an overpass. So we were stuck in miles. Oh, man. I I wish this was a stand-up routine now and not preaching, because I would then tell you, everything that I said, and and, and my wife continued to still be really kind and really calm, and I know you're stressed, and I know you want to get there, and I know this is tough, and finally, we got past that blockade, finally, to I-95, within five miles of where we were staying for the night north of New Haven, I could have waved to Yale Divinity School where I was for a few years, and four lanes became one, and sorry... And I'm going to say it, I lost my shit. <laughs> and that's the cleanest version I can say of what I did. And we were running out of gas, too. I said, no, we are going to make it. We are going to make it. And gritted teeth and a gritted soul. And my wife did something I really appreciate, which is that she cursed at me. <laughs> the kindness was all gone. So I'm not running out of gas on I-95 at 12.30 in the morning. I listened to her. When I got out of the car and pumped up, we got back on. We had a little bit more ways to go. And I could feel all that tension starting to melt away a little bit and be replaced with what was really there all along. And I thought I needed a little help in this. I needed a little help to really listen to this. And so I put on the reissue of Rolling Stone's Exile on Main Street. And, you know, there's a whole mythology about that album, that the Stones were, you know, they were uh, booted out of England because they owed millions of dollars in taxes and pounds, and and they were sort of recording this while they were, you know, drinking all day long and doing drugs and put together this amazingly beautiful album that was all about their, you know, emotional exile. How about how ragged they were? And I put on a song fittingly called Let It Loose, if you know that album. And the great thing about Mick Jagger is you get the emotion, but you cannot understand a single word that he's saying. And there was something about that sentiment of, you know, this other bad one of hundreds for Mick Jagger romantic relationship that broke down and him really feeling the, the pain of it in that moment that just burst something open in me as I listened to him sing. And I just let it loose. There was no more anger. There was no more cursing. There was no more anything to be done except be a 40-year-old man who was remembering his grandmother and missing her and crying. In the end, that was all that I needed to listen to, but was not ready to let go until Mick Jagger said, let it loose. Now, there's a postscript to this little story, which is that the next morning we got up after about four and a half, maybe five hours of sleep, just enough so we could get on the road and not feel, you know, like we were seeing double while we were driving out there. And my car wouldn't start and broke down. (laughs) Now, the thing was, I was all right with that. I mean, I didn't like it. (laughs) Tried to get the car fixed, got a rental car, and I ended up having to miss more than half of my grandmother's funeral. And that's just sad. I wasn't being punished. I wasn't angry about it. There was no one to be angry at. I got there eventually. I think if I'd missed it all entirely, I might be telling you a different story this morning. But that's all there was there, was just the sadness. Completely appropriate and completely real. The Buddhist teacher, Pima Shodron, she talks about a Buddhist concept. It's called bodhicitta. And she says it's very, very difficult to translate exactly into English. Said it can go by the mind of, you know, the idea of an a opened mind or awakened mind, bigger mind. And she really has one particular one that she likes. She says bodhicitta means in English, opened heart. Said years before she ever heard this teaching, she was walking down a road as a 10-year-old girl and had really just had an absolutely no good, terrible, rotten, cruddy day. And she was sort of, you know, kicking at the dirt. And an old woman by the side of the road saw her and said, Little girl, don't let the world go hardening your heart. Learning to listen to our lives is, I think, the primary way that we do not allow our hearts to harden even when we want to armor over them. It is one of the reasons that a piece of our DNA, one of our core values here at Wellsprings, it says that we aspire to be a community of deep listening recognizing that we can have the humility and the vulnerability necessary so that we can make positive change. Listening is an act of humility, an act of saying, I'm not in control of this, so I'm just going to listen to it. I love to remember that in his, I think entirely metaphorical, journey through the underworld, Dante found that the very tightest final circle of hell was not hot. It was ice cold. Entirely constricted. No movement. No awakened heart. No listening. Just imprisonment. I'll end with this. At the beginning of our 2.0 course that we call Listening to Our Lives, the quote that inspired that is by a minister and a novelist named Frederick Buechner. He said if he had to boil down absolutely everything that he believed in his entire life, it basically was this. Listen to your life. In the gladness, in the sadness, in the boring parts, in the angry parts, in the overjoyed parts, whatever it is, listen to it. Because if we listen to our lives, we will find that there is so much more here than we might think other lies. learning to listen is like learning to breathe the breath can all stay right in here or it can be all just yeah yeah I listened to you when in fact we just got shields on our ears or we can take that deep breath in and that deep breath out and that deep listening in And let life in and recognize that every moment is waiting to be reborn if we have ears to hear. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Spirit, where abundance is knocking, where the more of life is, let us approach with humility and open hearts, as empty-handed as we can be so that we are ready to receive, and with ears that are ready to be receptive. May we possess that quality of being that links us back up with the power of being and with the knowledge of soul. May we do nothing but this with the same time as everything, to listen to this moment and to know that we are here and life in all its fullness is here with us. Amen.